Welcome to CME on ReachMD. This activity titled Postpartum Depression, a Significant Burden and a Novel Approach to Treatment is provided by Omnia Education. Prior to beginning the activity, please be sure to review the faculty and commercial support disclosure statements as well as the learning objectives. I'd like to welcome everybody to this program on Postpartum Depression, a Significant Burden and a Novel Approach to Treatment. My name is Lee Shulman. I'm a professor of obstetrics and gynecology at the Feinberg School of Medicine at Northwestern University in Chicago, Illinois. And I'm joined today by Dr. Christina Delichinitis, who's the director of the Women's Behavioral Health, Sucker Hillside Hospital of Northwell Health, professor of psychiatry, molecular medicine, and obstetrics and gynecology at the Donald and Barbara Zucker School of Medicine at Hofstra Northwell, and professor at the Feinstein Institutes for Medical Research at Northwell Health. If you look at this next slide, these are our disclosures. And in this slide, please review the learning objectives for today's presentation. We'll start today's presentation with an overview of postpartum depression. Postpartum depression is depression that begins for the mother within the first 12 months after a baby has been born. It's one of the more common complications of childbirth, and yet it's one of the more commonly ignored complications of childbirth. In fact, up to 15% of women will experience some form of postpartum depression after their baby is born. Of these women, about two-thirds have no previous history of a diagnosed mental illness, and perhaps that's one of the factors that leads it, leads it to being uh, readily uh, not evaluated for. But it's important to know that those uh, women who have had a previous episode of postpartum depression have an increased risk for yet another postpartum depression episode to close to 30%. Postpartum depression can be a mixture of mood disturbances. It's not just one set uh, group of uh, disturbances. It can go from being sad or blue with a low mood or increasing irritability or tension I can be presenting with increased anxiety, both in the body as well as in thought. Uh, and while it is frequently dismissed as an adjustment to that new child, uh, again, as I stated earlier, it is unfortunately not recognized widely as a treatable illness. So these symptoms can range from mild dysphoria all the way to suicidal ideation and psychotic depression, although the far more severe uh, presentations are far less common. The other issue is postpartum depression symptoms don't just last for a couple days. She'll get over it uh, at the end of the week. She'll feel better when she gets home. That's not true. Uh, in fact, half of women are symptomatic for up to six months, and a third of women continue to be symptomatic to 12 months, especially if they have been untreated. So let's talk of the range of the types of postpartum depression. The most common of what has been uh, called postpartum blues or baby blues. And this really affects the vast majority of women who likely have some form of postpartum depression, uh, probably a half to three quarters of, of all women after delivery. And this does usually subside within two weeks without treatment. That doesn't make it any less of an uh, an episode of postpartum depression, and it uh, obviously um, behooves us to evaluate women for this 
to make sure that it not only doesn't last longer, but that it is something that doesn't require treatment. Postpartum depression, uh, something more than just the blues or baby blues, affects about one in seven new parents. And again, as I stated earlier, a previous episode increases the risk to almost a third. Uh, postpartum depression, as opposed to baby blues, which usually subsides without treatment, uh, is amenable to treatment with either psychotherapy or antidepressants or, or some of the new therapeutic options that we'll be hearing about uh, in a moment. Now, the most extreme version of this is postpartum psychosis. This only affects about one in a thousand uh, women after delivery. Uh, postpartum psychosis requires immediate medical attention as there is increased risk both for mother uh, as well as uh, the baby. And in this very rare and common situation, treatment usually includes hospitalization, psychotherapy, uh, as well as medication in a variety of combinations. So why does depression risk increase after a baby is born? Well, there are lots of reasons for it. Uh, again, the dismissive concept is, oh, she's just hormonal. Now, hormones do likely play an important role, but there are other aspects postpartum that can lead to an increased risk for depression. Sleep deprivation in new parents is a, is a very common occurrence and is a general trigger for mood regulation problems. Uh, there are major changes in an individual's role, especially new parents, uh, not just in the role as a parent, but in relationships with a partner and expectations for what that new role uh, can bring, can contribute to depression in any person, including perhaps the partner as well. Uh, the usual coping strategies may not be as easy to do, such as daily exercise or getting back into one's routine. Obviously, a new parent has a completely new routine. A and again, we still have women who have chemistry, brain chemistry, that is triggered by the hormonal changes that occur immediately after delivery of the of the baby, as well as delivery of the placenta. And in these situations, this can be a factor that is shared by family members and something that we would potentially find out about in discussing family history with our patients. The impacts of uh, postpartum depression, I think, are rather obvious. Obviously, start with mom. Uh, start with mood and social interactions, as well as physical and mental health. With the baby, we can find delayed cognitive and psychological development. If mother or is having a severe depression, uh, they tend to be a bit fussier and vocalized less. You have delayed motor skills, as well as the need for increased healthcare resource use. And as far as impact on marriage and partnerships, uh, postpartum depression has been uh, shown to potentially up to doubling the risk of divorce or dissolution of the relationship. Again, the signs and symptoms that uh, obstetrical providers and women's healthcare providers are really called to, to evaluate and recognize are not necessarily uh, specific to postpartum depression. Uh, mood changes, inability to concentrate, sleep and appetite disturbances. You can read them uh, on this chart, but uh, these are issues that uh, myself as an obstetrician gynecologist evaluate in both pregnant and non-pregnant women all the time. Uh, and, and obviously when it occurs after a baby has been born, hopefully that would be the trigger in the clinician that this may be related to postpartum depression and initiate a more thorough evaluation and the potential for intervention. Uh, 
with either psychotherapy or chemotherapeutic options. So what can be done? Number one, first and foremost, which has been called for by, by almost every organization uh, that is involved with the care of pregnancy and the care of uh, children, is to screen all women for postpartum depression during the antepartum visits. And again, why do we screen all women? Because number one, a woman may be unable to recognize that she is actually depressed or has issues that are uh, can be described as depression. She may believe that her symptoms are normal. Maybe she discussed this with a family member who said, yeah, just buck up. This is what it is. You know, you're, you're going to have a baby. This, you know, we all went through this. Um, there's a fear that if she says something, she'll be considered a bad mother or a bad person instead of this, uh, this almost ridiculous concept that every woman when pregnant has to be in a state of bliss. Uh, smiling, happy, waiting for this blessed event to occur. This is not a reality of taking care of pregnant women. And again, she may fear that her baby will be taken from her if she admits in any way to having some sort of uh, symptom uh, set or or maybe even considered to be depressed. Uh, So there's going to be not necessarily a, a, a volunteering of this information, and that's why we as clinicians need to be uh, able to screen patients for postpartum depression. First approach, there are there are screening options, but a very simple option are three simple questions. Have you felt overwhelmed in the last seven days about anything? Do you have any thoughts of harming yourself or your child? And are you having difficulty adjusting to your new role as a mother or as a pregnant woman? And if the answer is yes to any of these questions, then at that point, The system needs to get together and get this individual to a nurse or a clinician or a healthcare provider who can provide a more formalized screening uh, option and intervention for this. This is not something that, oh, call me in a week and tell me if it's gotten any better or any worse. This needs to be addressed. If there's a yes answer to any of these three very simple direct questions, immediately uh, uh, acted upon. Again, I mentioned there are screening tools. The one we use at Northwestern is the Edinburgh uh, Postnatal Depression Scale, but there are others here. Uh, They work well uh, to identify and to quantify the level of depression uh, in a patient, uh, and it's something that it needs to be familiar uh, with clinicians, whether or not they're going to provide these formal screening tools, getting them to people who can provide those screening tools to their patients. Now, the interventions, uh, I'm going to leave to uh, to Christina in a moment. Uh, but again, just looking at, at this overview, um, the treatment for postpartum depression is usually dependent on the type and severity of symptoms and includes psychotherapy, cognitive behavioral therapy, support group participation. Uh, there are new uh, medications, antidepressant, and we'll talk about uh, two of the newer uh, medications that have been specifically approved. Uh, for treating postpartum depression. Uh, And it's important to know that breastfeeding is not necessarily a contraindication to pharmacotherapy, as well as in severe cases, still electroconvulsive therapy, but clearly not as a first, second, or even third line option. So in summary, uh, it's important to recognize that postpartum depression is relatively common, can have long-term consequences for mother, baby, as well as uh, family, can be easily missed, in particular if it's not being looked for, 
should be screened for in all women, can be treated successfully, and not necessarily with drugs, but with a variety of interventions, as you'll hear in a moment, and is best addressed in a multidisciplinary care approach. So with that, I'd like to turn this over to my colleague, Dr. Christina Delagenitis, who's going to talk about the therapeutic intervention for postpartum depression. Christina? Thank you so much, Dr. Shulman. Um, so I'm going to focus on a little bit about um, the, the new approach um, to treating postpartum depression. And I'm going to start out with just kind of setting the stage for why these new therapeutics may be beneficial for women with postpartum depression. So a little bit about the underlying pathophysiology of PPD, postpartum depression, and also how that's tied into how these new medications may work. So here, you know, in this figure, it really kind of gives a summary of where the field is, the very rich research field that we're all very active in. And while the precise mechanism perinatal depression or postpartum depression is unknown, there are numerous theories of pathophysiologic theories of postpartum depression that have been proposed. And this outlines some of those. So endocrine, epigenetic, synaptic transmission, neural circuit, inflammatory mechanisms, neurosteroid, which I'm going to talk more about, and also stress mechanisms. The evidence to date really supports a synthesized or integrated mechanism of disease hypothesis. So it's an integrated process of both psychosocial, psychological, and biological risk factors that are coming together in a patient's environment that brings on the symptoms of depression, which can occur either in pregnancy when the hormones are high or after delivery as the hormones drop. And one of the leading hypotheses is that women susceptible to developing depression during pregnancy or after delivery is that they have a higher sensitivity to stress during times of hormone change or hormone variability. And that sensitivity corresponds to a communication in the brain between neuroactive steroids, which we'll talk a little bit more about, and the GABA-A receptor in the stress circuit in the brain. So this next slide, you know, again, is like another picture to just give an overview that these neuroactive steroids, which are the basis of these novel therapeutics that have been FDA approved for postpartum depression, are naturally made in the body. So they're pregnenolone metabolites. They're made in the brain. They're made also in the periphery by the adrenal glands, the placenta, and other sources. And they modulate both GABA and glutamate in the brain. So for inhibition and excitation balance in the brain. And they do this, the ones that we'll speak today are mainly working as positive allosteric modulators of the GABA-A receptor. We have decades of data really showing that these neuroactive steroids have really important roles in the modulation of acute and chronic stress conditions. And so they're really important. We think of depression as a stress disorder. You see on this next slide that during times of hormone change, we also see neuroplasticity or changes in this important GABA system in the brain in areas of stress regulation. And so here is a figure of an inhibitory synapse in the brain, and you see in the blue this GABA neuron, and then across from it the postsynapse where you see the orange receptors, which are GABA receptors, synaptic GABA receptors. And then to the right, you see these blue receptors, which are extrasynaptic. And neuroactive steroids are a little bit different than other GABA-binding substances or GABA receptor-binding substances like benzodiazepines or barbiturates because they only bind very specific types of these receptors in the brain. They have to be neurosteroid sensitive. It has a very unique profile, but the 
the main takeaway here is that there are two types of neurotransmission, a phasic response from these synaptic receptors and a tonic response from these extrasynaptic receptors. We know that based on hormone levels when they're high in pregnancy and then the drop, that those changes in those steroids actually change the number, the density of these neurosteroid sensitive receptors. And they actually influence the excitation inhibition balance in the brain. It's part of this maternal transition that happens in the brain circuit. And so it's thought that either when the hormone levels are high, the brain's not able to adapt its, you know, communication between the neurosteroid and the GABA receptor. Or for some women, they have their onset right after delivery and it's the withdrawal of the hormones where again, these receptors are trying to reset. Now, when things don't reset appropriately, either during pregnancy when the hormones are coming up or coming back, you'll see on the next slide, then we see network dysfunction, which we diagnose symptomatically in our patients as postpartum or perinatal depression. So we know through brain imaging studies that postpartum depression is associated with changes in different networks in the brain, the default mode network, the salience network, and others. And we've shown that actually the blood levels of allopregnanolone, one of the key neuroactive steroids, is strongly correlated with these changes in the brain. And so I give you that background because it's important to understand the pathophysiology in order for us to develop novel therapeutics and then to understand better how they might work uh, for, for patients. And so this this table here just is, a, I think, a, a, a nice summary of, you know, both what has been implicated in the, the pathophysiology of perinatal depression, but then also um, there are preclinical data studies showing the potential mechanisms actually mediating antidepressant effects. And you'll see that many of those are matching up and then there's further research that needs to be done as well. And so as Dr. Shulman noted, there are a couple of different types of modalities in the way we approach uh, perinatal depression. And so for, for mild, moderate, and again, this is unipolar perinatal depression or clinical depression with functional impairment, um, the recommendation is psychotherapy, usually as monotherapy. Um, and in certain patients who have a more significant psychiatric uh, history, also, you know, with pharmacotherapy, which we'll, we'll discuss. But I listed the most highly evidence-based psychotherapies here on this slide. So interpersonal therapy and cognitive behavioral therapy have the largest evidence base of randomized clinical controlled trials. Antidepressants, as you can see on this next slide, are indicated for more moderate, severe unipolar postpartum depression. So the wonderful thing about the uh, American College of OBGYN or the ACOG guidelines and the patient safety bundle is that the recommendations of using these validated screeners, we actually use them to track treatment as well. So if you see, and you're using the unemural postnatal depression scale, you see someone come in with a 24 or a 26 and you start a standard of care antidepressant or any other uh, type of therapy, you can recheck it and see if that if if the treatment is effective. Um, and so you can reuse that for sort of um, uh, like an indicator uh, to see how uh, treatment is progressing. But for many years, we've used standard of care antidepressants. These are the serotonergic antidepressants that are used for major depressive disorder outside of uh, the postpartum period. Um, and there is some evidence um, uh, when used for moderate severe depression that they can be effective. And I have um, you know, some of those uh, Cochrane database uh, data here. Now, regarding lactation in postpartum patients, 
um, you know, we often use a relative the dose um, as, you know, as a, as a key indicator uh, for one aspect of safety of medications in breastfeeding. Um, and I love this resource uh, at the National Library of Medicine, uh, LACMED. So we, we, we often have our providers uh, use that federal uh, resource because it's an up-to-date resource um, on everything under the sun uh, that's been studied in lactation. And um, usually RIDs less than 10% are considered acceptable um, by the FDA and other authorities. Um, and the the relative dose for antidepressants, the standard of care SSRIs and SSNRIs, they're typically less than 10%. Now I'll just transition into the, um, the newer options, which are not serotonergic antidepressants, they're neuroactive steroids. And so what we're talking about are these naturally made um, neurosteroids made in the brain, the ovaries, the adrenal glands. Um, Bruxanolone was the first FDA-approved antidepressant for postpartum depression and the first ever in its class. And this was an IV administered. Um, it's it's identical to the naturally made allopregnetolone. Um, as I said, a 60-hour infusion um, and we titrate up and we titrate down. Um, and the relative dose uh, for that medication and lactating patients is about 1.3%. So it's quite low. Uh, but many women will choose to, to pump and dump milk um, and to give milk that they've already pumped uh, prior to the infusion since it is a short treatment period. Now, uh, the scheduling uh, is Schedule 4, and I'll talk to you about the, uh, the safety uh, around this medication as well. But just briefly, a summary of the randomized clinical trials with Bruxanolone, just to show you really that the treatment is so different than anything else we do in depression care. We enrolled women with moderate to severe depression, and they were randomized to placebo or two different doses of the IV Bruxanolone just for 60 hours. And then that was the primary endpoint of those trials. And then we followed up at day seven and day 30. And you can see the rapid reduction. So on the y-axis, you see the change from baseline in their total depression score. So you saw that the depression went down quickly as early as 24 hours, but a primary endpoint was hour 60. And then you don't see any return of depressive symptoms all the way out to day 30, even though it was just the 60-hour infusion. Now, there is a box warning for excessive sedation and sudden loss of consciousness that did occur in 5% of brexanolone-treated patients compared to none in placebo. Um, the more common um, side effects are sedation, somnolence, dizziness, vertigo, things you would think about with a medication that uh, is a positive allosteric modulator of GABA. Um, all patients with LOC or altered consciousness did recover um, without inter, you know, without any intervention. Um, but Braxanolol can only be prescribed at certain facilities uh, due to this risk evaluation mitigation strategy or REMS. Um, and so that has um, brought some challenges in access for women with uh, more significant uh, postpartum depression, more severe depression. Um, but encouragingly. Um, recent data report that the rate of loss of consciousness um, might be much lower in clinical practice compared to what we saw in those trials. So that is good news. What is also good news is that um, just uh, in early August, uh, Zerianalone, 
um, was the second antidepressant FDA approved for postpartum depression. Now, it's important to understand the differences. Zoranolone is really similar to allopregnanolone, what our brain and our ovaries make. However, there's just a single ring difference um, at the end that changes the structure slightly that allows this to be given as an oral medication. And so this is a 14-day at-home oral administration that was FDA-approved. And we did a lactation study. The relative infant dose was 0.314 at the 30 milligram dosing. So again, very low and lower than most um, standard of care antidepressants. So just a couple of slides and I'll finish up on the results that led to that FDA approval. Again, the study design was similar, but the treatment period was 14 days at home with nighttime dosing. So women with severe postpartum depression were randomized to the placebo. In this study, the first study was at 30 milligrams, and then they were evaluated the next morning at day 15. And then we followed up to see how they were doing 30 days later when they were on that medication any longer. And you'll see a really similar curve. So we see, again, sort of a rapid reduction of depressive symptoms. And then our day 15 time point is here. Then we followed them out, you know, 30 days after without treatment, and they maintained the benefit that they had. We replicated that with a 50 milligram dose. And that's actually the starting dose and the recommended dose. So there's actually no titration of the medication. The FDA in their labeling recommends that the dose is 50 milligrams for 14 days. And if there are patients that have some side effects, you can lower it down to 40 milligrams. There's some exceptions for patients with types of renal impairment. Those patients can be dosed at 30 milligrams and there are details in the labeling. But it was this data from the 50 milligram trial, the Skylark, that they analyzed and, and took into their consideration. And they decided that the 50 milligram dose would be the dose. And so very similar design. And then as you see on this slide, again, a really similar curve, really similar drop in depressive symptoms. And I think the takeaway from this slide is that we had statistically significant differences after two doses. So day three. So you think of as clinician, you know, if you do prescribe an antidepressant serotonergic, you have a certain follow-up of your patients of checking in for potential side effects, and then they take time to work. So you have them come back in or you have a nurse reach out to see how things are going and check on side effects. Here, this is all done in 14 days. And so you really want to change the way that you're doing your check-ins with the patient to check for tolerability. Everything is going to be a very much shorter course as we think about how are we going to use this with patients in our practice. We do need to be aware that, again, the most common side effects are going to be somnolence, dizziness, sedation, and headache. And there is a boxed warning for impaired ability to drive or engage in hazardous activities due to central nervous system depressant effects. So this is a GABAPAM. And so we usually dose around 8 p.m. with a fatty food, usually, or if it's a late dinner, and then 12 hours later. So we advise patients not to drive or operate machinery for at least 12 hours after taking the medication. What's really great about, you know, these medications that are coming through and getting FDA approval is that now there are more neurosteroids under development for postpartum depression. So this has just opened the field for treatment patients with postpartum depression. 
I've listed four here, Enoxalone, Bree 296, Nora 520, and LY3300. Most are in they are approaching phase two trials or have just completed phase one development. Ganoxalone had done many trials with a PO and IV formulation, but for whatever reason, they halted their PPD development and it did go towards an FDA approval for a type of seizure disorder. They found greater benefit for patients with that neuropsychiatric illness. But we do have these three other areas of active investigation. So I think for me as a perinatal psychiatrist and neuroscientist, um, this is incredibly exciting for our patients. Um, it's been a, you know, something that's been neglected for, for m- way too long and uh, just really exciting to have um, new options for patients uh, to make treatment decisions around. Christina, thank you so much for that wonderful presentation. Uh, I do have a question, uh, primarily because I'm not a psychiatric uh, healthcare provider, uh, and I've witnessed patients that I've taken care of or other clinicians have taken care of, and there's been a very different approach to not only evaluation, but treatment. So how do you select a specific treatment for a patient with postpartum depression? Thank you. It's an important question because I think in this area of medicine, there's no specific algorithm that states, you know, what everyone should start with. So some of the key things I think about are obviously, um, you know, the past medical history. So what is the medical history, the current medical conditions and current medication that the, the woman's taking? Uh, where is she in the postpartum period? Did she just deliver? Is she six months out? Um, is she lactating and breastfeeding? Um, if she's lactating, you know, how far out she is and uh, what's the medical condition of her infant that she's breastfeeding? Um, all of these things are, you know, really important places to start. And then past psychiatric history. So is this a patient who's had multiple episodes of of depression or anxiety? Is it somebody with chronic anxiety um, in addition to this episode of postpartum depression? Because they might need something that's a little bit longer term treatment than maybe some of these more acute treatments that are now um, FDA approved for postpartum depression. There's also... um, you know, looking at the severity, as I believe you noted, you know, that's a, a that's a key differentiator. And so for more mild symptoms with less functional impairment, um, you know, it's always a conversation with patients of, of what their treatment preferences are. Um, but we often can start or do start with psychotherapy, but it's really, you know, the patient's choice. And so, um, you know, we can make the recommendations that some patients will still ought to take a medication. Um, maybe they're, you know, um, uh, have had psychotherapy in the past. It wasn't something they um, derive benefit from, or they're looking for something different um, or something they want in combination. So um, it, it's really a lot about their medical history, their past psychiatric history. Obviously, if there's a patient with, you know, a history of recurrent episodes of depression and chronic anxiety, I'm leaning towards the use of something that I can use more chronically. And so combined psychotherapy and likely a standard of care antidepressant. For a patient who has um, more moderate, severe with significant functional impairment, I want to get that woman better as fast as possible. And so that's where I think these rapid acting neurosteroid antidepressants are really critical. They're going to get patients back up on their feet, functioning, doing all the things that they want to do for themselves and with their baby. And hopefully we're able to, you know, reduce the impact of the illness on, you know, that maternal um, baby bond and interaction. Uh, so quite a few things to consider. You know, it's it's not just 
um, one medication for every patient or what approach. So, well, you, you know, you, your answer, I think, bespeaks uh, uh, something very interesting is that it doesn't seem that it fits into a simple algorithmic process. Uh, that the patient's uh, past history or lack thereof plays a role, her presentation plays a role, uh, timing plays a role. And I, I think uh, I think that, in a sense, uh, I think indicates the importance of, of, first of all, being able to screen people for it, and then second, secondly, uh, having a team available that is going to be able to do that proper assessment and, and recognize uh, the various interventions uh, according to the severity and the temporal nature of the presentation. As you mentioned about having a team in place, you know, I would love, you know, I'm in the perinatal psychiatry t- side of things. And so when patients come to me, they've already been screened. They've had, you know, an evaluation at some point where they need to see a, a subspecialist. What type of multidisciplinary team is needed to really optimize the treatment of postpartum depression? Because we know that there are so many gaps and areas where women can fall through the cracks during this process of screening and diagnosis and and treatment? Well, I I think the first and most important part of that team is the obstetrical provider, because if the obstetrical provider is is not screening her or his patients, then that is just a a recipe for disaster. And yes, you're maybe missing the most common baby blues or don't worry, dear, but you're also going to be missing those severe cases that could lead to a variety of morbidities and even mortality as we addressed. So first and foremost, whether it's a nurse midwife, an obstetrician, whoever is taking care of this patient during her pregnancy, this has to be as intrinsic a component of her obstetrical care as screening for fetal aneuploidy, as screening for gestational diabetes. It is not something, it's not an also added to, it is an intrinsic part of routine obstetrical care. Now, getting to the multidisciplinary team, I've been asked this question before, and sometimes people will hear this and say, oh, I work in a community-based hospital, I don't have that team, or I'm not at Northwell or at Northwestern or or somewhere where we have the wherewithal. I would dare say that perhaps outside of an academic center, you're probably somewhat easier to develop that team. Because one of the problems with academic medical centers is that we tend to live in siloed practices. We are involved in obstetrics and gynecology, and yes, we reach out to other specialties. But this clearly... Uh, while it is intrinsic to obstetrical care, clearly involves psychiatric and psychological care. So if we first and foremost have to get buy-in from all obstetrical providers, whoever they are, once that happens, I think nurses who are trained in mental health assessment are an important first step. Psychologists, other mental health providers who can provide a thorough screening of a patient who has come up with a positive result or for whom somebody is concerned about their mental well-being. And at that point, bringing in people like social workers who can work the system to make sure that specialty care and subspecialty care is readily available to them. And then finally, psychiatric and psychological professionals who have not just an interest in this, who have experience in this, I can take this patient down the various treatment paths that are needed with understanding that not only does one size not fit all, one size is likely not going to be appropriate for more than a couple of patients, that there are going to be so many other factors involved uh, that make a simplistic algorithmic process 
probably not a valuable approach in this regard. Thank you so much. I mean, it's it's such an important viewpoint and, and something you're right that regardless of where one is practicing medicine, um, you know, it might look a little different in each in each practice, in each location, but the key pieces need to be there for optimal care. Absolutely. I'd like to thank everybody for joining us here today. Dr. Della Janitas, thank you so much. This was a wonderful overview of an incredibly important topic for women who are pregnant and for new parents and even not so new parents. It was a real pleasure to work with you here today. You have been listening to CME on ReachMD. This activity is provided by Omnia Education. To receive your free CME credit or to download this activity, go to reachmd.com slash Omnia. Thank you for listening.